We are continuing this run series, run, people who ran in the Bible. And this weekend, we're thinking about vital lessons for life. We're looking at Elijah, uh, a story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah had gone to Mount Carmel. He had called down fire from heaven, anticipating a national revival would follow, but it didn't happen that way. Instead, he gets a message with a death threat, 1 Kings chapter 19. When Ahab, he's the king, got home, he told Jezebel, that's his wife, everything Elijah had done, including the way he'd killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more for the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast, the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Haziel to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Mahola to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu. Those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I've preserved 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Uh, I've been involved uh, this uh, week uh, on the premises here. We are remodeling the prayer room. It's closed this weekend. Really excited about the way the prayer room is going to be looking. And one of the things that we're going to be doing is placing different prayers on one of the walls of the prayer room. How many know that sometimes life renders you speechless? You want to pray, but you don't know what to say, and so we're going to gather some prayers, some ancient prayers, some Celtic prayers, some prayers directly lifted from Scripture, uh, prayers uh, like the prayer of St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. 
uh, two prayers from Anne Lamont. The first one goes like this. Help me, help me, help me. How many would use that one? And then another one, thank you, thank you, thank you. Those are the two prayers. Here's one that probably won't make it on the wall of the prayer room. It goes like this. Lord, I have had enough. Kill me now. <laughs> Amen. I'm thinking the working group sharing in this project is not going to approve at least the whole of that prayer for the prayer room. But this prayer, this prayer comes from Elijah and he's no spiritual weakling. This, this is a guy who called down fire from heaven, fire from heaven. He raised the dead. Anyone raised the dead this week? Just think back over your week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Waking your teenage son up in the morning doesn't count. <laughs> but he's had enough. Now, why has he had enough? Well, for one thing, he's living in a really difficult time. Every generation thinks that their time is the worst time, but his time was pretty bad. Israel was in a leadership crisis. For 50, 58 years, almost six decades, there had been a series of rotten, terrible kings. And now number seven was on the throne, and the Bible tells us that he was worse than the previous six. His name was Ahab, a cowardly, sniveling individual, and he was married to the infamous Jezebel. The result of this was that Baal worship was like a, an infestation throughout the land, horribly, that included child sacrifice. Those who worshipped the true God were persecuted and Jezebel's right there she's a meanie Jezebel's father had murdered his own brother in a power struggle hers was a family drenched in bloodshed she is evil the new bible dictionary which was surely penned by a British chap classically understates Jezebel's character it says and Jezebel was a forceful and domineering personality that's pretty understated. That's like saying the atom bomb's kind of loud. She is a nasty piece of work, the Cruella de Vil, if you will, of the Old Testament. And Elijah gets a message from the palace. You know that feeling when you get home from vacation and there's a pile of mail and you start going through the bills and I hate it. I hate it. It's because one time, one time I, I was driving three miles over the speed limit in England. It's only ever happened once in my life. <laughs> Actually, it's a good idea to drive to the speed limit. That's safety. But it was so unusual for me to, to uh, break the speed limit that they took a photograph of me. <laughs> and I got this on envelope that said tra traffic infraction, evildoer, you will be executed, you know, that kind of thing. And my heart sinks now as I gather the mail. How, how, am I going to get another photograph of myself. Elijah gets a, a message from the palace and it's a message with a death threat and now he runs and he is overwhelmed and he can't cope. And I think, I think there are lessons for us here. The horrendous, the horrendous news from Houston, thank God for responses that we have been able to make and continue to make. But just this week, the horrendous news from the fourth largest city in the U.S. 
And you've got North Korea throwing a missile over Japan and just announcing yesterday they got a nuke. And that's the macro level. I look around this room, think of our friends in traditions. That's, that's the big picture. And in the micro level, some of you are navigating stuff. And it's not just there's one thing here, but there's, there's an accumulation, isn't there? And it's like, I have had enough. And we feel overwhelmed. What can we learn from this runner? Well, let's look in at this. Number one, follow with me in the bulletin, if you will. Number one, really importantly, the pathway to maturity passes through disillusionment. We better know that. The pathway to maturity passes through disillusionment. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. What message? I'm going to kill you. Now, Elijah, having called down fire from heaven... In his thinking, Israel is now going to repent. So he's going to get a letter from the palace to say, hey, we've realized the evil of our ways. Come back and help us sort our lives out. But he is now disillusioned because that's not happening. I want to make a statement that might sound unusual. Disillusionment is a gift. Disillusionment is a gift. It's a painful gift. It's a gift because it removes an illusion from us. It's painful because we, we want to keep the illusion. But nevertheless, if we're going to live, we must experience, if we're going to move to maturity, proper disillusionment. I mean, when you're born, if you're born in a healthy family... It's pretty cool, because if you need food, you just scream. And forgive me for saying so, but you want to poop? Well, poop. Someone's going to take care of that. And you can begin to think that that's the way the world works. I am king of the world. But you soon find out that life doesn't work that way, and the illusion of that is removed from you. I want to suggest to you, that much of the ministry of Jesus was about disillusionment because his disciples had this illusionary vision of a military Messiah who would kick the Romans out and he had to disillusion them and show them that he was working to another plan. I think we, could, we, we need to be disillusioned from a fairy tale faith. May I say this? Christians in Houston got flooded too. There are churches underwater right now. I think we need to be disillusioned with church. Some people think the church is perfect and then we need to be divested of that illusion. I remember as a young pastor, um, I, I was excited. I fell in love with the church the night I became a Christian at the age of 17. And I trained for ministry and planted a church. I was so excited. I soon found out the church wasn't perfect. Remember one lady came up to me, she said, Pastor Jeff, this church isn't loving enough. I said, you're probably right. What do you want me to do? She said, sort it out. I'm like, what am I supposed to do? I got Lucas lovey-dovey dust and I can just sprinkle it over everyone during a prayer and they'll all jump up, start hugging each other and singing Kumbaya while swaying. And I found out then that the church isn't perfect. We need to be disillusioned so that we can truly commit. We need to be disillusioned about marriage. My wife is not here this morning, so I speak freely. <laughs> How come 
in the romantic movies. No one ever drools on the pillow. No one ever snores like a rhinoceros basking in the mud. And they kiss first thing in the morning. Whatever happened to that morning breath thing? Some of you are nudging each other right now. That's very unhelpful. But you see, what happens is we can come into relationship with a honeymoon vision, and then once we're disillusioned, then the love really starts. We need to be disillusioned with ourselves. Because we're surrounded sometimes by messages that say, you're awesome, but sometimes you're not awesome. Jesus helped Peter with that. I'll never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus effectively says, let me divest you of that illusion. Before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. Why is it that in the AA meetings, the person contributes by saying, hi, my name is... And I'm an alcoholic. It's because they are beginning their sharing from the place of reality rather than the illusion of denial. I think we need to leave behind the illusion that we can be God of our own lives. Donald McCollum, my favorite writer, he says this. He says, you will be like God. That temptation, the temptation that proved too enticing to deny, this is in the Garden of Eden, was more than ripe fruit, however beautiful and delicious it might have been. The really desirable, impossible to resist part of the serpent's seduction was the promise of a promotion. If you eat this fruit, you'll gain knowledge that will make you more than human. You will be like God. The essential temptation, the foundational snare to our humanity is to want to be something other than we've been created to be, to want to rise up and take God's place. We need to be divested of the illusion that we can be God of our own lives. Sir, it's exhausting to try and be God. Maybe you spent your whole life living with the illusion that you're designed to make it by yourself and you were never designed that way. Let the illusion be shattered and let something substantial take its place as we allow God to take its place, his place. The second thing is this. Fear is the enemy of faith. Fear is the enemy of faith. Verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. There's a lot of fear around these days, isn't there? All the headlines that we we discover, and, and apart from all of the other things that we heard about this week, um, I, I became quite afraid this week when I turned onto a, a news channel. I won't be wrong to, to mention uh, which one it was online, uh, and that would be uh, unhelpful to MSN. But I, um, I switched onto MSN, and there's this headline. You may have seen it this week. It was the number three watched headline that day and it said this and I quote exactly it says death star could devastate the earth and I'm like what death star could and I'm thinking no one mentioned that before death star could devastate the earth and so I clicked and it's true it's true 
Here is an official announcement here at Timberline Church. There is a death star heading towards the earth and it's going to be throwing comets towards us and it could destroy the planet. You heard it here. But then when I read the small print, it says this is estimated to happen 1.5 million years from now. Some of you are going, whew. What happened there? Why did I click fear? Fear made me go, Wow, I need to check that out. It's a fearful thing to be alive. They should give a health warning to every newborn. <laughs> Maybe something like this. Max Licato says this. Here's, here's a health warning for the newborn. Welcome to the post-umbilical cord world. Be advised, however, that human life has been known in most cases to result in death. Some individuals have reported experiences with lethal viruses, chemical agents, and or bloodthirsty terrorists. Birth can also result in fatal encounters with tsunamis, inebriated pilots, road rage, famine, nuclear disaster, and or PMS. <laughs> I'm so tempted, but I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Side effects of living include super viruses, heart diseases, and final exams. Human life is not recommended for anyone who cannot share a planet with evil despots or survive a flight on airplane food. <laughs> Scary to be alive. And it was fear that was the Goliath that got to Elijah. Why was it fear? Because he's used to being in control. You know that frustrating moment when you lose the remote for the TV? Anyone here ever express, experience remote tension? Those married folks here. Where's the remote? Yes, your partner has hatched a dastardly plot to hide the remote from you, evil person that they are. And you finally locate it in the dog's basket, and it's run out of battery. So you're sitting there doing this, and you shake it, because this will surely help. And you slap it. And the TV doesn't even have an actual control because it's called progress. Elijah was used to making things happen. Hey, Elijah, we need a drought to catch the attention of Israel. Got it. We need oil to multiply for the widow. Done. We need a dead boy to be raised. Righto then. We need fire to come down from heaven. Yes, sir. Here comes a letter from Jezebel containing a death threat. And it's out of his control. He's afraid. It's interesting she sent a messenger, not an assassin. Because fear was better. She makes an oath, by the way. It's called a self-imprecatory oath. Watch this. This is what she would have done. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you are not like one of those. Fear. Where are we afraid? Jesus says, can I be honest? Frustratingly, Jesus says, don't be afraid. And I, I want to go, What? But may I suggest this to you, that if Jesus says, don't be afraid, that it's possible for us to not be afraid. It's an alternative way of living. It takes the work of the Spirit and His grace, fear. Number three. Number three, shame smothers. Shame smothers. 
Look at Elijah. He says, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. I'm no better than my ancestors. Stop right there, Elijah. Step away from the pity party because who said you were better than your ancestors? But he's, he's a runner and he feels ashamed. And some of us do. Don't we? Some of us as Christians, despite this gospel of good news, we live with shame every day. Chuck Swindoll said, most folks, it seems, are better acquainted with their guilt and shame than with their God. The wonderful late Lewis Smeads, who passed recently, said, unhealthy shame spills over everything we are. It flops, sloshes, and smears our whole being. Shame will smother the life out of you. Why don't we believe this gospel? That forgiveness truly is available. Number four. Number four, feelings lie to us. Feelings lie to us. Elijah says, I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. And let's just examine what Elijah said. And by the way, he says exactly the same thing twice over, word for word. Because he's in a mind lock. Isn't it true you can get like that? You, you get into this circle of thinking. Let's examine what he says. He says, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty. Check, that's true. The people of God, the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. Hold on right there, Elijah. They just renewed it at Mount Carmel. The Lord, he is God, they cried out. That's not quite true. They've torn down your altars. Hold on a minute. They just rebuilt one and fire came down. That's not quite right. They've killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah, you are wrong on two fronts. They're not trying to kill you. Jezebel is. And there are 7,000 others, including a bunch of prophets. In other words, Elijah's feelings lied to him. John Quincy Adams said this. My life has been spent in vain and idle aspiration, idle aspirations and in ceaseless rejected prayers that something beneficial should result of my existence. That's what he thought about himself. The guy was ambassador to Holland, American ambassador to Britain, ambassador to Russia, secretary of state, senator, and US president. And he said, I've done nothing. The French novelist, Anne Nin, says, we don't see things as they are, but as we are. It would be irresponsible for me addressing a passage of scripture that talks about a man with a death wish. And isn't it crazy? Because he runs for his life and then prays for death. It would be irresponsible for me to look at that passage and not make reference to the tragedy of suicide, particularly teen suicide. The tragic waste and the loss of life, often for a lie. I'm very conscious that somebody could be listening right now who is so desperate. And I can't fix that with a couple of words, but I want to say without making light of a challenge, if you're a young person, 
you can take that test again. You don't have to have the perfect body to flourish in life. You don't have to blame others and say it's their fault that you're going to do what you do. Stop. Don't just listen to the feelings. There's help. Pastor Bob, who's our pastor on call this weekend, is going to be at our welcome center. There's help. There's hope. I want to say to because I know that there are members of our own Timberline family who have been so wounded in this area and have suffered such great loss. And again, I, I don't have words, but I do want you to know that you are loved and thought of and cared about. And I want to say this to anyone who hears these words here or online. Please stop. Get help. And don't get let the feelings lie to you. And you say, well, it's not just the feelings. It's the circumstances. Well, yeah, I know, but a better day. A better day can be ahead, as Elijah was to discover. Our feelings don't always tell the truth. Well, the last thing is this. The first step is the biggest step. The first step is the biggest step. Then the Lord told him, verse 15, go back the same way you came. Now, when God said, go back the same way you came, if I'd have been Elijah, I'd have said, thanks very much. Is there anybody else up there? Because you know what's back there? Back, Cruella's back there. And she's sharpening her fingernails. So God says, go back the way you came. That's irritating. But it gets even worse because God has got a three-part plan. It goes like this. First of all, Elijah, anoint Haziel king over Aram. You say, what's that got to do with anything? The, the Arameans were going to be the agents of judgment raised up by God to get rid of Ahab and Jezebel. That's why Elijah was called to anoint Hazel. And the second thing is anoint Jehu king over Israel. That's nuts. Jezebel is irritated. So God says, don't worry, just anoint another king. She's going to get really mad. Step number three, anoint Elisha. Why is that? Continuity of ministry, but also a friend to Elijah. When you're overwhelmed... You need Jesus, and you need friends. A three-point plan. And I, I want to tell you that Elijah did it, because I want Elijah to be John Wayne riding over the crest of the hill as the sun goes down. And lo, he obeyed. But lo, he didn't. He did not anoint Hazel. That was left to Elisha. He did not anoint Jehu king. So 13 more years and I think three more kings 
Ahab and two of his evil sons, the 13-year period of child sacrifice in Israel continued because Elijah didn't anoint Jehu or Hazael. He did anoint Elisha. He got one out of three. Why didn't he do it? Why didn't he trust and obey? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Why didn't, why didn't he sing that hymn? Because it seemed like a crazy plan. My brothers and sisters, as I wrap this up, we need to be gifted with the gift of disillusionment. And if we're going to be people who run in the right direction, we need to make friends with mystery. When I became a Christian, which was 44 years ago now, at the age of two, when I, when I became a Christian, I knew everything. Now, I know less now than I've ever known. I spent 44 years studying the Bible. I love studying the Bible. I've been in 271,321 Christian meetings. I said, man, you counted. No, I made that up. My faith was clinically black and white. Give me a question, I got the answer. Quick on the draw. Poof, poof. And now, my faith has more question marks than ever. And it's all right. It's all right. Because it's okay not to know. And it's okay to not go back to Eden and try to aspire to be God. It's okay not to go back to the Tower of Babel or Babel, however you pronounce it, and try and build a tower to make a name for yourself and be God. It's okay to say, I'm not God. I don't know. You are God, Lord. You are the Lord. And we come to you today. We ask you to help us to receive the appropriate gifts of disillusionment. Disillusionment, getting rid of illusions, getting rid of illusions about ourselves. I pray, we pray now for people here in this location, in traditions, watching online. And the light's going on because we're seeing that we were never designed to be in charge of us. We want you to be Lord and God. We're going to continue to pray, so please keep your head bowed. This is kind of unusual, but I'm going to break into the prayer by doing this. If you would like to become a Christian right now, you want to get rid of the illusion that you're just supposed to do life by yourself. Christ has come. He has died on the cross to deal with everything that separates us from God. 
You don't understand everything, that's all right. But right now, you want him to be Lord and God of your life. This is a big moment, the biggest moment. If that's where you're at, wherever you are seated, can I ask you to slip up your hand and hold it there for a moment, please? Just do it right now. If that is what you want. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anyone in traditions who's responding, thank you. Our prayer team will be here at the end. We have resources we want to help you with. But right where you are, just say, God, you be God of my life. I surrender to you. Forgive me. Take charge. Take your rightful place in my life. Pray that prayer. You begin the Christian life. But as we just continue in prayer, I want to ask you now, please, to just look up. Look up now. Open your eyes. Because you see, Timberline family, some of us this weekend are overwhelmed. We've had enough. We've had enough. And perhaps it's not to the level of desperation that I've described in some cases, but you're just overwhelmed right now. I want this to be a moment where we can earnestly pray together. And so I want to ask this. If you're one of those folks who'd say, right now life is like that. I've had enough. It's just too much. I want to ask you to hold your hand up. You can do this in traditions as well. Would you do that? Because I want to include you in a prayer. That's the way life is. I've had enough of it. Just hold up your hand. Do it right now. Hold it high. Would you please keep that hand up? Keep it up. Keep that hand up. You'll see people near you with their hand up. Don't ask them why they've got their hand up. Would you please reach across to them? Would you please get up and go to them? And go stand with them. Let's do it right now. Let's have a bit of holy chaos in the house. Go stand with them. Put your hand on their shoulder. Gentlemen here. Lady here. People around the building. Just go stand with them. I'm going to lead us in prayer, but you agree with me. Elijah needed Elisha. We need each other, and not just in this moment. So we come to you, Lord. And we place our hands on the shoulders of people who are feeling like life is just overwhelming, and we ask for grace. We ask for strength. We ask for opportunities and open doors. We ask for resolutions. God, you are the glory and the lifter up of our heads. So strengthen your people, we pray. And everybody said...